Good morning. It's good to see everyone this morning. Happy Valentine's Day to you. Um, all the things that go with this weekend. It's so good to have you here and uh, very thankful for the chance to be in God's Word this morning. If you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, and that's where we're going to be this morning. But I want us to, to remember what the series and the significance of the series that we're in. I've been calling it Core Strengths or Core Convictions um, because my hope is for us as a church that we'll, we'll understand kind of a firm foundation for what it means to be a biblically thriving church. Because I'm convinced that when we are biblically thriving as a congregation, that we will grow in mature ways. Um, there will be a maturity about the way that we do everything that we do. Um, evangelism, discipleship, uh, missions, our giving, all of the aspects of what it means to be a, a healthy church, that if we have this strong foundation built and established to understand these pieces, that it best positions us to then really thrive and grow in a biblically mature way. And so we've looked at those, and I want to just, you, you watch the, the video, and again, Nathan, thank you so much for putting that together. Um, but just to really drive it home again, in order for us to be a biblically thriving church, we must be, and I use that language, we must be. So in other words, I want to give you permission that at any point that I, as your pastor, if I ever deviate, then you would be able to say, no, 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 we must be Scripture-fed. In other words, if I, if, I, if I ever come to a place or any pastor in your life where it's like, you know, this and something else, you, know, you have to come back and say, no, we must be Scripture-fed. We must be Scripture-fed because here contains truth. And here is how we know what Christ is like. And here is what we know what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Here is what it is to know what a leader is and that we are to be servant-led. Which leads us to that second point. We must be servant-led. Because leadership is important in any organization. But if we just allow the world to speak to us a message about what leadership ought to be within the church, and we turn a blind eye to what God's Word says, being Scripture-fed about leadership, then we will go the way of the world when it comes to being the body. And yet, what God has laid down so firmly is that His church is to be led by servants. I mean, Paul identifies himself over and over again to the churches when he would write to them, Paul, a servant of Christ. That was his self-identification. I'm a servant. I'm a bond servant. This Greek word doulos. I mean, I'm a slave to Christ is what he was saying was the weight of his words. And so we today must be servant-led. And then we look that that naturally, as the church was being scripture-fed in Acts, and as they were being servant-led in the, in the book of Acts, we see them on their knees, and they are desperate for God, and God then fills them with His Spirit in order to go out and make disciples of all nations. And we see it happen again and again and again, that we see this pattern unfold of what is being described in the book of Acts, so that we know that if we are going to be effective at the mission, the great commission of making disciples of all nations, we're going to have to be Spirit-filled. And the position that we see the church being filled with the Spirit again and again in the book of Acts was prayer. And so we're going to be a church of prayer. We're going to position ourselves in this dependent posture before God on a regular basis, both individually when we scatter, but then also corporately when we gather. 
And then we see that as the church was in these movements, that as they were filled with the Spirit, having been Scripture-fed and servant-led, that then they became Christ-centered in their proclamation. And they saw Christ in all of the Scriptures. They, they, they went out proclaiming Christ to the ends of the earth, to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And the rest of the New Testament is this kind of unfolding story about this Christ-centered church just expanding and growing and going to the ends of the earth. Such that here now in New Orleans, we have a church. We have many churches that express the body of Christ within this region. And we see just that continued expansion to places like we watched a moment ago, to Lesotho, where the name of Jesus is, is little, if not known, in many, of the, in many of the valleys and the mountains. And so we see this, but what does all of that result in? And that's what we're going to look at today, is that that final core conviction of what we must be is we must be father-glorifying. We must be father-glorifying. But as I say that, I want to be careful that I don't distinguish it as some additional aspect because in essence, it's kind of the summation of the others. In other words, I'm convinced that as we are a scripture-fed congregation, as we are a servant-led congregation, as we're a spirit-filled congregation, and as we are a Christ-centered congregation, we are very naturally going to be a father-glorifying congregation. In other words, that's what it all comes up to, that as we do those things, it's just what glorifies the Father. And listen, you might rightly push back and say, Chad, well, you know, that's a good thought, but can you prove it? And the answer is, I think I can. And this morning, that's what I want us to look at and to see that again and again and again throughout the scriptures, God has been communicating from the Old Testament into the New and to this moment that he has been doing all things for his glory, for his glory. But don't take my word. I want you to hear some passages from the Old Testament where God is speaking to his people. And I want you to hear these before we move over to the New Testament and look at this passage in Philippians. So I want you to hear these passages. Hear Isaiah 48, 11, where God says, I will act for my own sake, indeed my own, for how can I be defiled? I will not give my glory to another. Ezekiel 39, 21, I will display my glory among the nations. And all the nations will see the judgment that I have executed, the hand that I have laid on them. Habakkuk 2.14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as waters cover the sea. First Chronicles 16.28, ascribe to the Lord families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. First Chronicles 16.29, ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Psalm 24.8, who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Psalm 57.11, God be exalted above the heavens, let your glory be over the whole earth. Psalm 79, 9. God of our salvation, help us for the glory of your name. Rescue us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. These are but just a few of the passages from the Old Testament where God is making clear to his people, I am acting for my name's sake. I am doing this for my glory. 
Now, if you're like me, glory is one of those terms that sometimes I grapple or struggle to really get my hands around. When I'm talking about the glory of God, what am I saying? What am I communicating? Well, what's been helpful to me to understand what I'm saying when I say glory is it is a word that encompasses all the attributes of God, such that when I speak about the love of God, that God is love, that is an aspect of his glory. When I talk about the holiness of God, his, his otherness to, to us and to all things, I'm speaking about an aspect of his glory. His holiness is an aspect of his glory. His love is an aspect of his glory. When I speak about his justice, how he executes justice rightly, his justice is an aspect of his glory. When I talk about his mercy, that's an aspect of his glory. When I talk about his goodness, that's an aspect of his glory. When I talk about his faithfulness, that's an aspect of his glory so that all of these things come together and rise up to be to the glory of God. So when we speak of his glory, we're speaking about this essence, this totality of who he is. And so God, it makes sense then, when he rescues us from sin, he's showing in that moment his glory because he's a forgiving God. He's a merciful God. He's a just God because of the way that he brought about our salvation. His glory is being seen. And this is a distinction to the Christian faith is that we are a people who believe that God's glory was in full display in a person. And not just any person, but his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. We have beheld the Father's glory in the Son. And that's a distinctive that makes us who we are as the people of God. And so today, I want you to look at how Paul puts this so concisely, so powerfully in Philippians. I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's word, hearing God speak to us from Philippians chapter 2. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 5. The word of the Lord. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself to, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death. On a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Give your attention to these last words to the glory of God the Father. Will you pray with me? Father, we pray this morning that as we have been working as a church in accordance with your word to be sure that we have a foundation to build on as a body, to be a biblically thriving church, that we will understand that all that is built, it is for your glory, that you have given us your word to be fed for your glory. 
You have given us servant leaders to serve and lead for your glory. You have filled us with your spirit for your glory. You have focused our eyes and centered our hearts on Christ for your glory. And that it is all for your glory that we exist. It is all for your glory that we are saved. And it is all for your glory that we give our lives. So Lord, orient us today to the chief end of all things. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. You can be seated. As we look at this passage, there's just one idea that I want us to leave with today. And it is the most, it's, it's the greatest dilemma of the Christian. Let me go ahead and tell you this. What we're going to consider today is the crisis of Christianity. It is what will destroy us easier than anything else in this world. There is no outside enemy that is as dangerous as this truth, or really not living in light of this truth, and here it is. God's glory is seen in humility. God's glory is seen in humility. Because the opposite of humility is pride. And it is pride that is always, always lurking. It is pride that is always trying to fester. It is pride that is within our hearts, always threatening our allegiance to Christ. It is pride that is at the root of our evil. And therefore, it makes perfect sense that as we look at the Scriptures, that we would see that God's glory is seen in humility, and the greatest demonstration of humility was Christ Jesus. This is at once wonderful news and devastating. Wonderful because the way up is a road down. Devastating because people love to stand and resist kneeling. We want to climb the ladder, not hold the ladder for someone else. We want the corner office, not the cubicle in the corner. We want to be respected much more than we want to show respect. We want to be remembered far more than we want to remember. We want to be seen as Christian far more than we desire to be like Christ. God's glory is seen in humility, wonderful and devastating, all depending upon our response to Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you have a received status that you did not achieve. To achieve a status is to work for it, to earn it. Now, there's nothing wrong with achieving status in the workplace. To work diligently with excellence and integrity will hopefully achieve for you a higher status and respect in your workplace. Such achievement is commendable and good. But who among us appreciates the efforts of someone else in our workplace who try to achieve our status? Said another way, who try to take our job? I don't know anyone who likes the person in their office who's gunning for their position. Not a position equal to theirs, not a partner in the firm, but the owner. 
Sure, sometimes that knowledge helps us to keep working hard and, and, and so that we don't lose our seat, keep our edge. But tell me, do you look favorably on that person? No. None of us like that person who's coming for our position. Yet you and I, without realizing it, are gunning for the position of Christ every time we try to achieve a status with God that belongs only to Christ. Christ alone is righteous. So when I am gunning for righteousness on my own, I'm trying to take his spot. Christ alone is the Holy One of God. And so when I try to distinguish myself in some Christ-like way apart from Christ, I'm gunning for his position. Christ alone is king. And so when I tip my hat to him but then do life my way, I am like one who who enters an empty throne room and sits on a throne that does not belong to me. Christ alone is the only begotten Son of God. As the only begotten Son, the full estate of heaven belongs to Him. It's His inheritance. We may not have realized that by keeping our own spreadsheet, our own ledger of good works in order to get a modest plot in heaven, that we were planning to trespass on someone else's land and hope for squatter's rights. It will not work that way. Chad, is there no place in heaven for me? No, there's not. Christ received it all. Hear it straight from his mouth, from Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority means it all belongs to him. Chad, so you're saying that only Jesus gets to go to heaven? Exactly. Only he has the right to enter his father's house. Only he has the right to sit beside his father. Only Christ. So Chad, are we hopeless? Apart from the kindness of Jesus Christ? Yes. Apart from the grace of God? Yes. Apart from the power of the Holy Spirit? Yes. Oh, that we would truly have eyes to see this reality, that apart from Christ, we are hopeless. But in Christ, we have hope. And we have, as Scripture says, a living hope. A hope that will extend for all of eternity and will hold us secure forever. But apart from Christ, we have no good thing, as the Scriptures say. For if we would see this, then our faith would be in Christ and in Christ alone. You see, that's the great struggle that we, like everyone else in this world, combat. You see, in Lesotho, where J.B. and Liz labor, when they go into the village to share the gospel with the people, the people there believe in ancestor worship. They believe that there are people who have preceded them in death, who have gone before them into the spiritual world and basically will, will do favor for them by allowing them in. And so to honor the ancestors, they go and they make sacrifices at their graves. But additional to that, they also will wear charms to keep away the evil spirits. Charms that were sold to them by the witch doctors in the villages. And all of these things kind of add together into this, you know, syncretistic, you know, kind of living of, you know, like there's spiritual realm here, there's a spiritual realm here. We're, We're always just kind of fearful. 
And so then when the missionaries come to the village to present the gospel and they say, Jesus can save you, they say, great, what will at which wrist? Is there a necklace that you wear? Like, what is it that Christ brings that I can wear or do so that I can add him to the repertoire of all of the things that are helping protect me in this life? And one of the most difficult things that the missionaries have to do is to say, it's Christ alone. You're no longer going to pray and, and make sacrifices to your ancestors for their protection into the spiritual world. You're no longer going to have confidence in your, your beads to save you. And in fact, we're going to ask you as an act of your faith today, would you cut them off? And in that moment, it is a, it is a crisis for this individual as they consider that tonight when darkness comes, that the evil spirits might invade their home because they don't have the charms on anymore. Will they trust Christ alone? And for us here. I don't know many that are wearing charms to keep away the evil spirits at night. I don't know many that are going to the graves of their ancestors and making sacrifices here in the West. But I know many people who live in fear, like the people up in the mountains of Lesotho, fearful, doing things, living a life that is always worried always fearful that they've not done enough in this life to be able to go into heaven. That there are people here who constantly are living in fear that, that danger or, or disaster might strike them because they've not said enough prayers or they've not read enough scripture and all those things. And, and even that person in the course of this sermon series, when they hear scripture fed, they say, yeah, I've got to be reading my Bible because otherwise bad things will happen to me. They're a person who says, yeah, I've got to keep going to church because if I don't, then bad things are going to happen to me and I may not go to heaven one day. And that is a fearful existence. That is not a faithful existence. It is a fearful existence. And that is not what God in his grace gives us in Christ. Instead, he gives us confidence. You see, nothing obligates him to hear our cries. In other words, there's nothing you can do. There's not enough scripture you can read. There's not enough services you can attend. There's not enough money that you can give that obligates him to hear our cries. But the scriptures promise that he does. That there's nothing, there's nothing that you can do that will obligate him to forgive us of our sins. But the scriptures promise that he will. Nothing obligates him. No moral life, no code that you could achieve obligates him to secure us forever in his hand. But the scriptures promise that he does. Nothing obligates him to be with us always, but the scriptures promise that he will. We can't see God's glory without humility, and that is most true in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Philippians 2, what we looked at right here, we see the glory of God in the exaltation of Christ in verses 9 through 11. But don't miss it. We, we a people living in darkness. We a people living in sin. We a people slaves to sin. We won't see the glory of the exaltation of Christ unless we first see the humility of Christ in verses 6 through 8. 
We must see Christ, who existed in the form of God, not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. You see, Jesus had the status, but he did not use it. Jesus had the private security detail, but he waved them off, saying, I could call on a legion of angels if I needed to. Jesus had the ability to speak the word, but before Pilate, he remained silent. Jesus was the guest of honor, but he cleaned up the kitchen and took out the trash. Biblically speaking, instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, and when he had become as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. No words, no words can capture the shame and torture of the cross. We cannot fathom it. The humiliation of the cross was the greatest humiliation that could be inflicted on a human being. They had perfected shame. They had perfected humiliation and they subjected the worst criminals to it. Yet Jesus willingly submitted to the Father's will, which was his death on a cross, a once-for-all, one-for-all death to save us all. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. In Christ, we receive his exalted status, verses 9 through 11. The scriptures say in Ephesians that we are seated in the heavenlies in Christ. In him, Ephesians says, we have received every spiritual blessing in Christ. It, we shall share in his inheritance. The deposit being the Holy Spirit, a guarantee. We shall reign for him, with him forever. We stand secure, Ephesians 6, in Christ. This is a received status achieved for us by Christ. The exalted status of Christ seen in Philippians 2, 8 through 11 is said to be to the glory of God the Father. Remember, that's the ultimate goal or the ultimate reason for all things, to glorify God the Father. In other words, an exalted Christ results in glory to God the Father. And it was the humility of Christ through the death on the cross that led to his exaltation resulting in glory to God the Father. And so shall the life of every believer be. A humble life that exalts Christ to the glory of God the Father. This is why Paul says in Philippians 2, 1-4, through If then... There is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And here, verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility considers others, consider others more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. We start the Christian life in Philippians 2.6 in a shared status 
with Christ Jesus our Lord. Today, much is made about our shared status. You hear language like, I'm a child of the king. You hear it in scripture being quoted like, no weapon formed against me shall prosper. You hear it in church names like victory, new life, abundant life, living hope. There is incredible union with Christ, which is ours by grace through faith in Christ. But today we hear little about even though you are a child of the king, you should live as a servant of the king. We hear more about being full and less about being emptied. We hear more about sanctification and less about incarnation and living. We hear more about entering the temple and less about leaving the camp, as Hebrews says. We hear more about our status in Christ and less about the stature of Christ as a servant. We hear more about victory and less about virtue. We hear more about overcoming and less about coming under others in service. Truth be told, ours is often, and I'm speaking about the church primarily here in the West, is often a prideful orientation to the Christian life rather than a humble orientation to Christ himself. FBNO, if we, we are going to be a, on a constant journey towards being a biblically thriving church. As I shared in my first sermon with you, we are going to be constantly making 1% improvements as we move through this Christian life. Constantly committed to improving in what it means to be Scripture-fed and what it means to be servant-led, to be spirit-filled, to be Christ-centered, to glorify our Father. What does it mean for us to be humble? We will be Scripture-fed, we will be servant-led, spirit-filled, Christ-centered, and we will be Father-glorifying, but only if we are humble. And that's what brings us to a crisis. Because men resist humility. Mankind, not just males, mankind resists humility. We resist submitting ourselves to God on a regular basis. We, we resist humbling ourselves before the Lord. We resist humility. Pride keeps, pride keeps us from feasting on God's word and causes us instead to long for an ear-tickling message instead. Pride keeps our leaders from serving, instead using their position for personal gain or personal preference. Pride keeps us from humbling ourselves in dependent prayer like the early church, which leaves us dry of the Holy Spirit, committed to keeping up appearance rather than longing for substance. Pride orients us to self such, a, such that we become a self-centered church rather than a Christ-centered church. And pride, when full-grown and producing bitter fruit, results in a self-glorifying existence that is repulsive to all rather than a father-glorifying existence that brings life to all. For only in humility will the world see Christ. And only in seeing Christ will they know the Father. And only in knowing the Father through Christ will they receive the Holy Spirit. Church, what if it's our pride that's keeping the world from hearing the good news? 
What, what if it's our pride that is keeping us from sharing the good news with our neighbor? What if it is our pride that is keeping us from even opening God's word and saying, God, I submit myself to you. And I submit to you. I'm convinced that it is. Because I too have a mirror. And I see the pride that works within me. But I know the one who is greater than my pride. And he, he is our hope. He is our hope as a church. And it is only as we humbly look to Jesus and do so through in his word and see living examples and servant leaders and pray for, for him to make himself known in power and in authority within the body that we then will go out boldly but humbly. I mean, the, the, that, the, the juxtaposition of those two things, this boldness with courage and humility, only then will we live for Christ. So I want you to, to fill the movement again. I want to read this passage again. I want you to, to see how Paul is leading us in the Christian life by reminding us of what is often called a hymn, an early church song to lead us to glorify the Father. He's reminding us you have an, an, a given status in Christ. You're beginning the Christian life, but like Christ, it will be a road of humility. It, it will be a road where you empty yourself, not, not puff up yourself, but you empty yourself in service to one another. Your life is going to be hid in Christ, so you can expect this road to be one marked with carrying a cross. But in that life then comes this incredible reality that in that life Christ is exalted. And in our death and in our resurrection, we will experience the glorification of Christ. We will see him as he is. And as we do and we fix our eyes on him, we will glorify the Father. So hear this, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so I wanna invite you to stand now as we sing a song of worship to our God of glory.